Good morning, Paul Boyce. I am CEO and President of PWGC, and welcome to our monthly podcast, The Environmental Echo. Uh, today, we have a, a really exciting guest, a guy I've been trying to get on here for quite a while now, and someone I've known for a little bit of time, and uh, he's a, a lifetime Long Islander like myself. We have Jeff Sabo, the uh, CEO of the Suffolk County Water Authority, with us today. Um, but before we begin, I just want to reach out to our, our, our listeners and let them know that if you guys are interested in getting a hold of us or contacting us, the best way to do so is through our website, which is www.pwgrocer.com backslash podcast. If you guys have questions, comments, um, ideas, thoughts, or I mean, you think of anyone you want to be a guest or, or topics, please share the information with us. We'll get back to you. We're very excited about this. And let's just jump into today's guest. We have, uh, again, Jeff Sabo, CEO of the Suffolk County Water Authority. Um, he's been in that current position since 2010, huh? Wow. <laughs> Longer than I thought, which is great. And just so you know, the Suffolk County Water Authority is Suffolk County's largest uh, municipal public water supplier. Uh, it's serving uh, 1.2 million residents of Suffolk County uh, with clean, safe drinking water, of which I am a resident and consumer of that water, and I, I will testify that it is excellent, okay? Um, some of the achievements that Jeff's had during his tenure with the, uh, with the Water Authority is the development of the utility's first long-term strategic business plan, uh, which identifies key objectives to transform Suffolk, County's, uh, Suffolk County Water Authority's operations over a 10-year period, uh, which includes completion of the transition to automated meter reading technology. Uh, I got to jump in and say something real quick. You know, I, I I love it. I appreciate it. But I used to call in and get that dollar yes. off my bill. I, I mean, that all the time. No <laughs> more of that, right? But the the, the automated stuff has been terrific. Uh, implementation of a mobile workforce technology, which I hope he'll share a little bit of that with us today. Uh, development of long-term sustainable water supply plans for vulnerable vulnerable areas. Development of new treatment methods for emerging contaminants and conducting vulnerability assessments of critical facilities, uh, among other objectives. Jeff was also the architect of the creation of the Long Island Commission of uh, Aquifer Protection, LICAP, which that has an annual report. I know, P.W. Grocer, we were involved in that in the early beginning with some of the geothermal stuff, and perhaps we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, that but the LICAP study and the annual reports, uh, it's a bi-county effort to identify threats to Long Island's sole source aquifer and provide a blueprint for regional management of, of Long Island's groundwater resources. Uh, he's been past chairman of that organization, and I remember those days, you know, back in the, when it started. Uh, Jeff also serves on the National Drinking Water Advisory Council, which provides recommendations pertaining to safe drinking, to, to the Safe Drinking Water Act, to the United States uh, EPA, EPS, the Environmental Protection Agency. And he's on the board of directors of the Association of Metropolitan uh, Water Agencies. Now, that's something I don't know anything about. <laughs> Which could be interesting. He's also, gosh, it goes on and on here. He's <laughs> chairman of its uh, the legislative committee, and additionally, he serves as chairman of the Central Pine Barrens Advisory Committee. And under his guidance, has received multiple awards for various organizations honoring Suffolk County Water Authority's performance and commitment to the environment. And I want to welcome Jeff to the show today. Thank you, Jeff. <laughs> We're very glad to have you here. Uh, that is quite a long list of accomplishments. It's um, quite a long intro, Paul. Yeah. I, <laughs> well, thank you very much. Uh, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to be a guest today to talk a little bit about uh, the Suffolk County Water Authority. Ah, terrific. And again, we're really excited to have you here, um, here on the Environmental Echo. We're going to stick to the, mostly to environmental topics, but if we, we tend to drift off a little bit, don't be afraid to dive right in, Okay. Um, but speaking of diving right in, let's get to our first, you know, topic at hand. Uh, we mentioned in emerging contaminants in your introduction. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that's affecting the, the Water Authority these days? Sure. Absolutely. So 
the Suffolk County Water Authority has a state-of-the-art laboratory um, on Motor Parkway in Hopog, and we test for over 400 chemical compounds. That's about 250 more than we are required to. Uh, we're very proud of that. I wish I could take credit and say it was something that I initiated uh, during my tenure as a chief executive, but they've been actually doing it for, for probably close to 30 years. So we test for more compounds uh, than asked by uh, the EPA or the state health department, and um, we're proud of that. And I think that um, all of the data that we collect is uh, provided to our customers. It's available on our website, and it allows uh, the residents of Long Island and people who are customers of the Suffolk County Water Authority to know exactly what is in their drinking water. Um, emerging compounds, uh, the New York State Department of Health has been extremely aggressive in looking to, to, to see what is found in drinking water across New York State. And uh, the last several years, they have set uh, maximum contaminant levels, uh, which is the um, an, an MCL, which is the, the highest amount that... Um, uh, a compound could be detected at uh, before it needs to be removed by treatment for compounds like 1,4-dioxane and PFOA and PFOS. Um, and that was sort of spearheaded through uh, the Governor Cuomo at the time, Governor Cuomo's Drinking Water Quality Council that meets on a regular basis um, to set new standards. So they've addressed 1,4-dioxane, PFOA, PFOS, and in 2022, they're seeking to expand um, and to put additional regulations for uh, other compounds within that perfluorinated family of, uh, of, of chemicals. So we expect additional regulations to come. Uh, the good thing is, uh, if there is a good thing, uh, is that <laughs> PFOA and PFOS, uh, they are removed by uh, traditional approved, well-known treatment methods like granule activated carbon. And when we talk about carbon, um, I guess the best way to explain this to, to the listeners would be, you know, uh, some folks in their home, in their refrigerator, they may have a, a, a Brita filter, Yep. right? A Brita filter, it's, it, it's carbon. Sometimes you'll see, you know, little charcoal uh, specks that, uh, that appear in, in your water, typically from the filter. Um, take that and multiply it by, you know, a, a oh couple of thousand. Yep. And it, it's essentially running, you know, carbon through water before it gets out into the distribution system and into residents' homes, into, you know, to their faucet. Um, so carbon will remove most of the PFOA, PFOS. On the 1,4-dioxane side, it was a lot, uh, a lot more difficult uh, because at the time of the regulation being set, there was no approved treatment method. And that left us, uh, you know, <laughs> that left us in a position where we knew that the regulation was likely to occur. So years before the MCL was set for dioxane, uh, the engineering staff at the Water Authority at, at my direction and our board support, working with outside consultants, developed uh, uh, an advanced oxidation process uh, that, uh, and after uh, years-long discussions with both the local health department and the state health department, it was finally approved and um, the system was put into operation at one of our well fields, and it's effectively removing dioxane from drinking water. So it's a good thing. Yeah. We're moving in the right direction. Uh, the, the issue that we're dealing with now is that dioxane is detected across both Nassau and Suffolk County. Um, and there are literally hundreds of wells that have detections of it. And we, our job is to remove it. We didn't put it there, but it's our job yep. to remove it. So uh, we've been deploying these um, AOP reactors at various sites, 
throughout our service territory as other and drinking. And AOP stands for? Uh, a- AOP is advanced oxidation. Yep. So it's essentially uh, UV lighting, uh, a tube with UV lighting at uh, a very high temperature that destroys dioxane before it goes into a granular activated carbon treatment system and then out to the distribution system for consumption. Uh, but where you know we've been working with the state, where we've made it our number one priority to get these uh, these reactors uh, in place, delivered, and operational as soon as possible. Wow, <laughs> and it's this is no small undertaking. I mean, you guys have uh, probably around six hundred wells countywide, active wells, right? And yep. so I assume a bunch of them are going to be required to have this type of treatment, and it's going to be a not a, a, a small undertaking, uh, either physically or financially, correct? The co- ab- absolutely. So our um, well field spread from Melville in the west to Montauk in the east. And uh, there are easily 60 wells that uh, would, would need to get treatment on uh, to comply with the standard and, and half the standard. So the Water Authority not only treats to, that, to, that, uh, to the regulation of, um, of one part per billion uh, for dioxane, but we treat to half the standard, and we do that with most of our organic chemical uh, compounds to ensure that if there are spikes, right, there are samples taken at well fields uh, routinely, um, and, and dioxane is something that um, the, the levels you know, could fluctuate, um, and we're constantly checking to ensure that we're meeting the standards. But if there is a fluctuation and it moves from below half the standard to above half the standard, we know that the treatment will be in place to remove um, to, to remove it before it gets out to the drinking water uh, customers. Wow. I mean... And the cost, <laughs> Paul, you talked about yeah, the cost. You know, we, we, we can't minimize the cost. Uh, uh, you know, potentially, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, certainly close to a billion dollars for Nassau and Suffolk County. Um, and that's, you know, if you look at not only the capital construction costs, but also the long-term operating costs. Yeah, UNM, right. It's, it's absolutely, it, it's, it you know, sort of blows your mind a little bit. So we do have litigation uh, that we've initiated against the manufacturers of, um, of these chemicals. Uh, we're hoping that we're successful, uh, but that, you know, that, um, that will have to run its course in maybe a couple of years before we have anything definitive on that front. And we'll need treatment long before then, right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So what did we have to do? <laughs> regrettably, yeah. uh, re- regrettably, uh, uh, a couple of years ago, we instituted a water quality treatment charge to specifically pay for the treatment associated with emerging compounds. Um, it is a, a $20 quarterly charge to all of our customers. Uh, we weren't happy about it, but we needed the funds to get treatment in place as quickly as possible. You know, our, our desire is to treat to zero, right? To, to you know, to, to remove it, com- you know, all of these compounds. Uh, completely from drinking water. So we needed the additional funds to do the capital work to get the treatment in place. Um, and we, it's been, it's been, uh, it's $80 a year, $20 a quarter. We bill quarterly and we're hoping that we're victorious in our litigation and that that may provide some relief for our customers. Well, uh, I still will say, you know, no one's going to be happy when they hear they got a, a surcharge or a rate increase regardless, but water is still the most affordable um, utility here on Long Island, at least, at least in my experience, you know, you look at electric or gas, oil, and cable, whatever else is coming into your house. I'm paying a lot more for that, and this is certainly 
if not as important, maybe even more important than those other utilities. I can live without cable and, and internet, maybe not maybe, comfortably, maybe, maybe. okay? <laughs> but I sure can't live without water, you know? So that's that's how important this is. And it's still, to me, the most affordable of all of that stuff. And thank goodness for that, because I also use probably more of it than any of the others. Well, I, I really appreciate you saying that. Um, and historically, uh, we've had, uh, you know, relatively low drinking water rates. And we make every effort to keep those rates as low as possible. Annually, we do a review of um, our revenue and um, our cost, you know, capital cost and capital budget. And we try to forecast out a little bit, uh, of course, uh, to make sure that we're charging uh, the appropriate amount. We, 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 the fees that we levy um, and the service for water um, is something that the board is very mindful of and we try to keep as low as possible. But when you have an issue like emerging compounds, that's, that's going to cost, you know, like I said, hundreds of millions of dollars, if not close to a billion, um, you know, that needed to be addressed directly. And we wanted to be very clear w- with our customers. You know, we, we set a separate line item on their bill so that they knew it wasn't a consumption fee. Uh, it wasn't uh, their, their, their quarterly service charge. It was a direct line to address this specific issue so that we can be as transparent as possible. Yeah, I, 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 as a rate payer for the, you know, I, I appreciate it. You know, I, I still, I'm not complaining at all. It's still <laughs> well, the most you. affordable utility I'm, I'm, I'm using and uh, relying on. And it, I've never had any problems. You know, occasionally you might see some brown water show up when the guys are flushing mm-hmm. hydrants and stuff, but I've never had a service interruption. Uh, I've always had excellent pressure where I live, thankfully. I'm, I'm down by the bay, so I guess I'm by a low point in the system, which usually helps. And uh, But it's been, it's been a pleasure to be a resident. And in Suffolk County and, and rely on you guys. Um, not to, uh, just one last thing before we move off the emerging contaminants. You mentioned, you know, there may be expand the, the perfluorinated list and stuff like that. But besides like PFOA, PFAS, are there any other contaminants out there that you guys see on the horizon that might be a problem for, for Suffolk County? Uh, for instance, like years ago, or not too many years ago, but a few years ago, it was like pharmaceuticals became like the hot topic, you know, how they go through someone's body, end up, you know, going out to a sanitary system and, you know, ending up potentially in the drinking water. But do you guys see anything else on the horizon we need to be aware of or concerned about? Well, um, as, as I mentioned, you know, we, we test for more than, uh, than is required and we're participating in the unregulated contaminant monitoring rule with the EPA. Yep. Uh, and that is a list of uh, typically, I think it's between 30 and 40 compounds. Uh, so we're collecting a tremendous amount of data. Uh, pharmaceuticals, you know, that's certainly something that, that a lot of folks are concerned about. There's some talk um, at the at the uh, federal level with the EPA and the health department, uh, you know, to look at other compounds as they continue to collect data. I think New York State uh, most definitely will seek to regulate the perfluorinated compounds. But as far as anything on the immediate, uh, you know, uh, that, that we expect to be regulated within the next year or two, um, nothing comes to mind. So there's nothing. Okay, that's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm glad to see you guys aren't seeing anything that's troubling in all your additional sampling, which is also a, a good thing to know. Um, so to, to move along a little bit, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that I said the word geothermal. All right. And I know you guys have, um, you're, you're not against geothermal systems. You don't outlaw them. You, you know, you're not prohibiting them. But there have been in the past some concerns 
with some of these systems. And I've had the opportunity to come in and, and talk to the, the, the water authority about these types of, um, you know, energy systems so for heating and cooling homes. And um, some of them are closed loop, which th- that's totally separate. But the open loop systems where people are pumping groundwater and using groundwater or maybe using another water source that can be of concern. What's um, what's the water authority's concern with, with geothermal systems? So we, yeah, we, you're... Uh, certainly one of the experts when it comes to geothermal. Uh, you and your firm, Paul, have, have, been, have done a fantastic job at uh, uh, you know, presenting uh, the environmental benefits of geothermal uh, to residents and to businesses across, you know, across the region. We appreciate that. There certainly are benefits. Our concern, and I think the, the drinking water industry's concern about um, open loop systems is the tremendous demand that it places on our infrastructure. And um, I think that, uh, you know, closed loop systems certainly, um, you know, I think are, are, are sort of a, a stand aside, a separate category uh, and not as detrimental. But the open loop systems, uh, there are you know, certain customers, uh, you know, primarily on the east end of our service territory, maybe a large estate uh, that has a geothermal system that could use, you know, tens of thousands, if not millions of gallons of, of drinking water. And our job is to make sure that there is uh, enough supply. And often we have to uh, put in additional infrastructure with boosters uh, and other things to ensure that oh, additional wells to make sure that there's enough water, not only to supply you know, the, the, the average resident, but also uh, individuals that have geothermal systems. Uh, and that can be a, a tremendous cost. So the concerns that we have are um, you know, notification of, um, of the systems when they're going in to ensure that we can um, uh, ensure that we have enough for, for all of our customers in the area and to make sure that there's proper fire protection and things like that. Oh, yeah, 100%. That's, that's something I always try to educate the clients and the developers and the people that are looking to install these things or considering them is, you know, how it affects others, right? There's, um, it could be the water authority, it could be the local fire district, you know, all of a sudden, you know, they're pumping or they're using water and maybe not pumping but using water and there's not enough pressure in the system to put out a fire down the block you know you think somebody's going to realize that and turn their air conditioning off it's it's not likely so it it becomes a a health or a safety hazard you know it's just it's mind-boggling so i'm glad you brought that up oh absolutely and i think you know that there are ways to you know certainly to address it um and i think um having the the conversation um, and with individuals like yourself and um, under other industry leaders, I think that you know that's always beneficial to try to move uh, what is essentially, uh, in many respects, uh, an environmentally positive thing forward. Good, yeah, no, that's that's what we're all about here. <laughs> so uh, another topic that has been really big in the news, all right, and I, I suspect it's going to have some effect or impact to you guys, and that is this federal infrastructure bill, right? There's a talk of a lot of money coming down the pipeline. It's it's passed. You know, it's just now a matter of doling everything out and who it gets doled out to. And I saw in New York State, you know, water-related projects were high on the list, and as they should be, you know, along with roads and bridges and airports and whatnot. But as I said, you know, uh, I, I need roads to be comfortable and to get to point A to B, but I need water to survive, right? Absolutely. So how, how do you guys expect this to, to impact the Water Authority, if at all? We're very, uh, very optimistic, very excited about the opportunity for a federal infusion of funds. Um, you know, let's be clear, there, there really hasn't been 
um, you know, federal assistance of this magnitude uh, for drinking water uh, in, in, in many, many years. So a c- couple of things are happening. You have uh, the state, uh, the state legislature uh, back in 2017, 2018, began to become more aggressive in providing grants for drinking water purposes, uh, uh, you know, across, you know, downstate, upstate, across the entire area. And we've been very successful in um, submitting applications to the Environmental Facilities Corporation yep. for, for treatment, for, for treatment and for uh, improvements. It could be as simple as replacing, you know, a hundred year old, uh, you know, uh, um, antiquated water main, that uh, you know uh, certainly needs to get replaced, uh, you know, to provide again, you know, better service, better you know, reliable fire protection. It could be for uh, construction of elevated storage tanks or uh, treatment. So over the last several years, we've been awarded close to thirty million dollars in grant money from the state. So every dollar we get from the state means that our customers are are paying less for the improvements that are needed to to happen. Um, the federal money. Um, and we're still trying to get the specifics, right? We've had conversations with our federal elected officials, uh, with the Senator Schumer's office and part of, you know, members of the congressional delegation, and also with folks from the Environmental Facilities Corporation. So we, we don't have, uh, we, we suspect that the process of applying for uh, and receiving grants will be similar to the process that they use uh, for a lot of the state money. Uh, which will be, you know, through the Environmental Facilities Corporation, there'll be a rating system, there'll be an evaluation period, and then an award. Uh, but we're we're waiting on specific information. But it it is historic, and we're going to take every advantage, uh, you know, every, every opportunity to secure as much funding as possible. Some of the things that we want to do with this money, I was going to ask, uh, yeah. what's, what's your wish list, right? <laughs> I figured that, you know, that was next. Um, believe it or not, Paul, there are between 25 and 30,000 Suffolk County residents that are still on private wells mm-hmm. that are not connected to the water authority or, uh, you know, the Riverhead water district or the Hampton Bay's water district. They're still on private wells. And many of those, uh, many of those wells are threatened by these emerging compounds. And uh, over the last several years, we have worked uh, very cooperatively uh, with uh, the town of East Hampton and Suffolk County and the state of New York in bringing these folks on private wells um, and get them to get them connected to the Suffolk County Water Authority. In those instances, there has been um, either town money or federal or, or state money or county money to help offset the cost. It's very expensive to lay water main and to connect people to drinking water. So we've developed a plan um, trying to secure state money and federal money to connect these last 25 or 30,000 people and get them off these private wells that you know, potentially threaten their health and get wow. them clean, safe drinking water. Well, it's, it's interesting. You mentioned that most of them are east, you know, the east end, right. the, the forks. And, uh, you know, I know there's a lot of agriculture out there still, farming, you know, pesticides, fertilizers, not only just, you know, um, PFOA, PFAS type stuff, but absolutely, I, I know um, we're dealing with a bunch that, you know, nitrogen, can be an issue, you know. <laughs> That's, how do you deal with that too? Um, so, I'm, I'm fortunately, po- you know, for us, uh, the nitrogen has has come up uh, repeatedly as being a threat to to drinking water. Certainly, it is a, a significant threat to um, uh, you know to water, but not necess- to surface water, but not necessarily drinking water. And you know, I've, I, it it is it's an issue, but it would not be in my top twenty areas of concern. Uh, out of our 600 active wells, we have one 
well that actually we treat for nitrogen removal out of all 600. Uh, but that doesn't mean that nitrogen poses problems, uh, you know, significant problems for surface waters and for and for and is a potential threat to the aquifer overall. So yeah. those efforts to to remove uh, whether it's pesticides or the emerging compounds or nitrogen, I think uh, you know the. Uh, Health department, the layers of government, uh, they should be applauded for bringing the drinking water issue to the forefront. Glad to hear that, Jeff. Thank you. Um, so, uh, Long Island, we continue to grow and hopefully prosper. You know, we've come through this pandemic and we're seeing some economic revitalization. Things are hopefully going to get back on track sooner than later. We've seen some growth. We're seeing inflation and all sorts of other things. But we won't get into the politics. But as Long Island grows, right? there's going to be a need for more water, right? And I know right now you guys are meeting capacity and everything else, and it's, you know, but um, we're here we are. It's, it's February. It's the dead of winter. <laughs> you know, you're, you're not pumping as much as water as you normally do, say, like in July, August, even into September, mm-hmm. when the, uh, the demand and the usage goes up because everybody loves a, a green lawn, you know. Um, That's right. How do you guys handle that usually when, when that comes yeah, around? Very good question. So, Unlike other regions um, across the United States, you know, you read uh, the newspaper and the media outlets about, uh, you know, the lack of water availability, right? California, the Southwest, oh, yeah. even sections of, uh, of the South, you know, Florida, Georgia, where there are, you know, lawsuits and, um, you know, big, um, you know, discussions related to the, you know, the future of available water to, for domestic use and for consumption, we don't have that issue here um, in Suffolk County and Nassau County. We have enough water to last uh, several lifetimes, you know, a thousand years. If it stopped raining tomorrow, right? If it stopped raining tomorrow, we would have enough water in the aquifer to last for hundreds, if not thousands of years. That's a good thing. But that doesn't mean that we don't um, look at trying to ensure that um, we have it and it's available. So we're constantly looking at uh, at our internal infrastructure to see what improvements we need to make to ensure that we have the, the supply when it is needed. Uh, a lot of that will, uh, you know, depend on which section of, of the service territory you're talking about. Certainly, uh, the, the the demands moving forward into the future are different in Western Suffolk than they are in Eastern Suffolk. Uh, I'll bring up a, a particular project that we're uh, pushing forward at this point. Uh, we do supply uh, drinking water to the residents of, of Southold. And our distribution system in Southold is sort of this, um, It's uh, it's been put together over the years with a series of very small drinking water wells with low capacity um, and small, uh, you know, small inch diameter uh, water mains. And there's enough supply there, but they also have some issues with, with the aquifer itself out there. It's not as deep. It's fragile. You have some salt water intrusion. Oh, you're getting into my next topic. Yeah. <laughs> so you have, you have some, some issues out there. And um, at times we have struggled with locating property for a potential new well field. And if you do get, uh, have a piece of property, how much water are you going to be able to take from the aquifer to serve in the area? So we are uh, looking to get some of the federal funds that we just talked about to construct a, a, a $30 million pipeline, essentially bringing water from, from uh, Flanders uh, to, you know, which, you know, in the Riverhead section over uh, high quality drinking water. Um, it's been there. Uh, it was, it's, you know, it's Pine Barrens pure, essentially. It's very high quality. 
Uh, we have, um, you know, a, enough there that we can sh- move it from uh, that area in Flanders over to Southhold, and that will allow for aquifer restoration and preservation in Southhold, which I think is also a very, very beneficial thing long term for the North Fork. So that is a that that's a significant project. We're in the development stages of and uh, uh, the engineering phase of putting that together, but we think long term. We're bringing water from where we have it to where we need it and also allowing the aqua, you know, to ease off on the wells that we presently use in Southold eventually so that they can, you know, restore themselves. And uh, I think it's a good thing for, for the customer perspective and certainly a good thing for, you know, for uh, all of our residents. Oh, that's great. Um, but you did, you brought up my next topic, which was the saltwater intrusion issue. And, and speaking of Southold, um, we just, did a, a project out there when we were study groundwater modeling where we were modeling the saltwater interface and it was literally south hold all right and we saw how fragile and sensitive and very responsive that aquifer is to pumping uh, we actually had to model some of your well fields in there too you know and, and see what happens and how it affects you know what we're trying to do or what the client's trying to do and we did see you know intrusion under certain conditions and so it's it is very very fragile very sensitive um, especially the way that the aquifer is set up out there with these different layers of clay and, and lenses of clay and how it reacts. Uh, we're also, you know, um, we're fortunate we're involved with other projects with other uh, municipal water suppliers on the south shore of Nassau County, and they are Lloyd uh, users, all right? And they have very great concerns as that's their only supply, mm-hmm. okay? Everything else above there is has got salt in it already, so this, the, we're engaged right now. We're doing another modeling study where we're looking at, you know, how that water, that, that interface is going to move either horizontally or, or vertically. And, you know, how can they manage this or how long do they have until things go salty on them? You know, uh, again, growth and conservation and a few other things. Maybe they have to import water, like you said. But what do you, are, there, are there other areas of Suffolk County where you guys are, are experiencing issues with saltwater intrusion? And, and what are you doing about it? Yeah, you know, Paul, um, you really nailed, um, you know, the, the two areas um, on, in Nassau and Suffolk County on the head. You know, whether uh, the two that jump to mind most definitely, Southold and the South Shore in Nassau County, uh, that when it comes to saltwater intrusion, and the fragile nature of the aquifer related to, you know, enough of a supply. Those are the two. Uh, I think most of your listeners probably don't really understand the difference between, you know, the, the aquifer um, out east on the eastern end of the island and the aquifer in western uh, western Suffolk and, and certainly in Nassau County and um, water availability and each of, you know, how, how that sort of changes as oh you move boy. across the island. It does. It really yeah, does. And it's really important. You know, we most of the, the wells that we have uh, on the east end are, are, are relatively small, you know, a fraction of, uh, of the wells that we, by well, well capacity, meaning the amount of water that we can pull from the well in order to supply, it's a fraction of what it is in the western half of our service territory. Uh, but when it comes to intrusion, it's those two areas. We also, there are times um, from an infrastructure perspective, we have concerns about uh, our wells on Fire Island. I was going to ask. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Fire Island, uh, not only from, uh, you know, a, 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 a sort of a climate change you know, perspective and the yep. long-term uh, um, availability of, of the wells that, that serve uh, the residents on Fire Island, um, but also from uh, saltwater intrusion and uh, some other issues that we have there. So we've been extremely aggressive, again, receiving state state assistance to uh, improve the infrastructure there and to harden the infrastructure. Uh, but, the you know, the 
the drinking water quality from those wells is something that we always you know keep our eye on and uh, and struggle with. Yeah, it's it's not an easy issue. Um, like I said, we're currently involved in a project that it's going to be a challenge. If if you know we're not we're not we're just in the beginning stages of it, but if we see that 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 saltwater interface does start migrating towards the suppliers' wells and they do go salty. It's going to be a real issue, you know? Yeah, and, and it, you know, the real other, issue. other thing to point out is, and I think a lot of your listeners may not know this, this either. It's, it's very interesting, but, you know, we, we don't move water from, um, you know, from, from Huntington to, uh, you know, to, to Bayport or Brookhaven or, you know, the water that you drink and the water that you get is typically from within a couple of miles of, of yep. where you live. You know, there's, uh, it may be uh, a well field that you, you're not really sure it was, you know, is there a piece of property back on that street? You don't really know what's back there. Uh, but, you know, we, we, we try to do a good job of being very quiet and, but being good neighbors, making sure that our well fields and our properties um, are, are in residential areas, but are well-maintained and not problematic for customers. But most of the water that people drink is from, you know, right, right around the corner from where they live. Uh, yeah, and you mentioned Bayport. That's where I'm from. So, <laughs> yes, and, and I, I know where the well fields are. I, you know, it's, to me, they're obvious. But my wife, the school teacher, I'm like, oh, it's a well field. But what, what are you looking at? There's nothing. Yeah. I'm like, you guys are very discreet, and you're always very, very good neighbors. Um, so I appreciate that, too. Um, so, you know, we, we mentioned this. It's a very vulnerable and valuable natural resource, you know. Um, so we kind of touched on conservation, and you, and you mentioned there is a lot of water out there. You know, we, I think in some of my earlier podcasts, we were talking about some of the LICAP studies in the state of the aquifer, and it talks about like trillions of gallons of water, like, you know, Absolutely. numbers that are incomprehensible. Um, but are there any efforts from you guys to encourage people to, you know, maybe not use as much, you know? You, 100%. Because like during, as I said, the irrigation season, right? You guys could get, maybe you don't, but I know some other districts, they do get into some problems when they, their tanks are down, they don't have the pressure that they need. Like I mentioned earlier, if a fire broke out or something like that, you could have some concerns. Absolutely. We, we pump about 70% of all of our water for the year between, say, May and September. So if we're pumping, um, and most of that, Paul, that's mm-hmm. from residential uh, irrigation systems, people watering their lawn. You know, you're, the domestic use doesn't typically change throughout the year, right? People yeah. cook, people, you know, they have... They bathe, uh, they, they clean. Bathe. Exactly, exactly. So that's you know, stays pretty standard uh, throughout the course of the year. What drives up use is um, the home irrigation system and the, um, the business irrigation systems. Pools and other things play a role, but it's really the, the timing of the sprinklers. And although we may have enough water to last generations, we, we, we think that we're stewards and we all need to play a role and to educate the public about um, the value of water. And that um, it's not it, just because we have it, it should not be abused. And we should understand that um, it's our job to ensure that we're not wasting it. So we've been extremely aggressive at the Water Authority. Uh, we've developed a couple of programs to educate the public. And also with that, with LICAP, with the Long Island Commission for Aquifer Protection, uh, when, when that commission was extended for another five years in 2018, we established a, a conservation subcommittee uh, to focus on um, bringing attention and changing people's habits long term related to uh, conservation. 
And this doesn't happen overnight. And uh, it may take, you know, like with any, any, anything else, any other branding, any other educational program, it could be generational. Uh, but we are, we're committed to making sure that people know the value of water and that we're here for a short period of time. And we want to make sure that drinking water is available for future generations. Oh man, that's, that's good to hear. You know, I mean, I'm back when I was shaving, I made the change where I, I used to let the faucet run and just, you know, the whole time now I fill up the, the basin or the sink and <laughs> I try to use less. I, I've made my own, you know, it's improvements. Smart. It's smart tips like that, <laughs> believe it or not. And we have this in-home consultation, this program that's available to all of our customers. Uh, we call, you know, it's a water wise program where we send uh, a staffer from the water authority to look at your consumption history, to check your account, uh, to sort of pull some information from, from, from the customer, you know, um, have, you know, uh, how many bathrooms do you have? Have, you know, kitchen, uh, do you have an irrigation system? What's the, the time of use and things like that to better educate them and to give them pointers on steps that they can take individually to make a difference. Uh, the program has been very successful and we're you know, planning to continue that into 2022 and beyond. Excellent. And uh, I hopefully I only have a couple more questions for you because this has been fascinating. Um, there's been recent changes to the lead and copper rule. I'm sure you guys are very familiar with this, right? They are looking at if that's, I think it's in the process or it has been, it's been revamped where the lead levels now are, they've reduced it, right? Before it used to be like whatever, 15 parts per billion or some, you know, very, very small number. Um, it's going down to like five. How are, how's the water authority going to react to this? Is it going to imp- impact you guys? I mean, what are you doing to prevent corrosion or treat for it? What, what, are, the, what are your options? So very good question. It's certainly a topic that's going to get a lot of uh, attention moving forward and only continue to, to receive media attention and also attention from the drinking water suppliers and uh, the regulators in having conversations with the public. So we've been, the water authority has been very much involved in trying to ascertain uh, you know, where uh, the, the, the federal government, the EPA and the, and the health department, where they're headed with this. Uh, the first step is creating a, sort of a, an inventory of services. Um, it's very complicated for us because we have over 400,000 connections serving, you know, accounts, Staggering. Uh, you know, serving Staggering. 1.2 million people. But we've developed, uh, we've developed a program where uh, we're able to, to get the, the inventory that's needed in order to, take, that's the first step, in order to take that portion, put the checkbox on that. We're not, um, you know, we're, we're, we haven't uh, begun collecting the data. There is still, you know, almost every week it seems like there's a, a new webinar or some a new oh, information yeah. coming yeah, yeah. from uh, from constantly uh, from regulators to whether it's a change in what they've been proposing or to provide uh, additional guidance. I think some of the the folks who will dictate to the to the suppliers uh, what they need to do. I think that some of some of that stuff is still up in the air right now, but we're monitoring it closely. Uh, we don't think that it'll be. Um, I know there are agencies across the United States that are, uh, that are, you know, uh, I don't want to say intimidated by it, but are, you know, uh, dedicating a tremendous amount of resources to ensure that they comply with, with the new lead and copper rule. Um, we certainly are doing that, but I, we don't think just because of the makeup of our service territory that it's going to be, um, a, you know, a, a, a task that, that we can't handle. Excellent. I mean, and do you guys mostly focus on like pH adjustment, uh, like the 
caustic or a lime or something to raise the pH? Well, we so we have. What's your, what's your part of our preferred? Yeah, <laughs> our, our you know our historic corrosion control uh, methods. Uh, that's something that I think has, has certainly worked to our advantage. Absolutely, and I think moving forward will be will you know it, it'll though doing that for so many years to ensure that we comply will be beneficial as we continue to and they start to implement the lead and copper rule. So. Um, yeah, there, there's certainly a lot of discussions going on about it. It's been a hot topic uh, for the Water Authority and certainly the Long Island Water Conference yep. and all the providers. So we're keeping our eye on it and make sure that, uh, that you know, we'll be at the forefront. Yeah, we are watching it closely, too. We've got a lot of clients that um, they have, as you mentioned, there's some private wells, you know, and they some of them serve. <laughs> you know, we have hospitals and schools and some of them are these non-transient, non-community water supplies and it affects them. So it's it's been very interesting and it's, it could be very challenging for somebody that's not hooked up to the Water Authority, which may be another encouragement to <laughs> absolutely yeah. to join, so to speak. I, I think, too, the... the one of the most important things is going to be the dialogue between the agency, you know, the drinking water provider in most cases, um, and the customer. And, you know, having a, a clear dialogue and an understanding of, of the steps that need to be taken, uh, whether it's, a, you know, a replacement of, uh, of a service line yep. um, and uh, the cost of that and who's going to pay for that. And I, but I think having those conversations early and trying to educate the customer base uh, as soon as possible, I think that will you know, obviously be very beneficial moving forward. Oh boy. Yeah. This is going to be interesting when this thing gets <laughs> finalized. So we'll, as you said, we're keeping an eye on it. So last question I have, right? So maybe not so much specifically to water quality or water chemistry or capacity, but more towards your staff, right? Um, there's been labor shortages in many, many different industries right now. You know, engineering, um, I could just say, like, if this infrastructure bill comes to fruition, you know, I, I've been to conferences and I've said this on other podcasts, you know, it's the, the prediction is we're going to we need about 80,000 more engineers, you know, nationwide to just keep up. And right now we can't keep up. You know, there's, there's more work out there than we can do. So I, I encourage anyone that's interested in the engineering field, get involved. But, you know, I, I know a lot of guys at the Water Authority from, you know, the distribution side to construction to the, to the operations to, to guys like yourself and, um, you know, some of the hydrogeologists. You guys, very broad, very diverse. Um, do you have enough staff right now? And do you see into the future needing more? Great question. Um, we have about 575 active staff. Um, everything from chemists in our laboratories to um, engineers in our engineering department, um, IT staff, customer service, you know, field staff, construction staff, uh, you know, very diverse, um, uh, very talented and committed. You know, one of the things I want to say, I, I appreciate, you know, when you work for an agency like the Water Authority, you know, our employees understand our mission. Uh, and the significance and the significant role that we play in the community, we have struggled at times with uh, with recruiting and trying to find the, you know a, a civil engineer to develop uh, plans for construction of a of a new you know chemical treatment building and things like that. Uh, we're here for you, <laughs> and we you know you, we love you guys. You know, you, as I mentioned earlier, you know you're one of the leading firms uh, certainly in the region, um, and we'd love to partner with you if there are opportunities. So. Um, so that's one obstacle where uh, on the highly technical side, we have struggled in the past with recruiting uh, where we're looking for a couple of key positions right now. But I also think we're faced with a large portion of our uh, employee base that is coming up to that uh, 
55, mm. 55 year olds, uh, you know, and 25 years of service or 30 years of service, and they're looking to retire. So not only uh, do we have the, the, the challenges of, um, you know, there's infrastructure money, there's state money, there's going to be a lot of work on Long Island, and that's a good thing. Uh, but we also are faced with our aging existing staff. So recruiting, uh, retaining, yep. providing incentives for employees, it's something that, that we're <laughs> aware of and working on. I'm not sure if we have the answer. We, honest, if, if you do, uh, <laughs> share that yeah. silver bullet with yeah, me because absolutely. Uh, you know, we're, we're about 70 people, my firm. You know, right now we have about 10 open positions. I mean, think about that. You know, it's just, and I just, it is a real challenge, real challenge. And you mentioned the retention, you know, and it's right now it's hanging on to people. There's been a lot of churn and turnover and people just going because they can go right now. And and, and other firms, you know, trying to, you know, take your talent. Well, and the thing too, that, that we struggle with is, you know, we're not the private sector, right? We're quasi governmental. We're state authority. Uh, we don't have taxing ability. Now, do you have we're, unions? You do. We do. Yeah. So we have about two thirds of our five hundred and seventy five employees are represented by. We have a, a small union in our laboratory and uh, local uh, three ninety three represents uh, the the the, uh, the the bulk of them, um, and the, the rest are sort of management exempt employees. Um, so I, I think that uh, I, uh, I lost my train of thought. There. I apologize. It's all right, but, but you know we're 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 aware of it. Uh, we're doing what we can. We're, we're we've been implementing succession planning, uh, where uh, we know that uh, key employees plan to leave within the next six months or a year. Uh, where uh, we have the board support uh, to uh, to bring somebody on early and to train into that person. And to be a mentor and to be a, a you know to, uh, sort of a, a tutor for, for that individual that we think will replace that individual, uh, so we're taking steps uh, you know to to do what we can to try to minimize the the, the negative effects of, of losing key staff. Well, like I said, when you figure it out, uh, I'm all ears because <laughs> it, it has not been easy, and we're trying to do the same thing. You know, we're trying to be very competitive with salaries and benefits and flexibility. I mean, you guys may not have, uh, you know, the same. That th- was know, the when, point I wanted to make. We, when, <laughs> when something <laughs> happens, you guys have to be there. It's right. not like, you know, oh, I want to work from home today or I'll work on Saturday or, or whatever. I'll get you the 40 hours or whatever you need, but it's going to be on my schedule. That doesn't always work with you guys. Oh, ex- exactly. Uh, so we're a little different, uh, but, but also from a, a compensation you know, perspective, we're not the private sector. We have, you know, excellent uh, starting salaries and, and benefits yeah. and you're part of the state retirement system, but uh, we don't give out bonuses. You know, we don't do, we don't, no one gets a company car anymore. There's, you know, probably two or three, uh, maybe four or five people left. So some of the things that traditionally were done or can be done in the private sector, they're, they're not really options for, for the water authority because of how we're structured. That's totally understandable. That's why my rates are nice and low, right? <laughs> well, we do the best we can. I, appre- I totally appreciate that, Jeff. Well, before we wrap up, is there anything you want to mention that we didn't cover today or, or something you want to let our listeners know about the Water Authority or, or your mission or your vision or, or whatever? Uh, yeah, I, I appreciate that. I think there are just a couple of things. Uh, this has been a lot of fun. And I'll, I'll tell um, you, Paul, Paul, you do a good. great job. Thank you. Um, I've, I've listened to several of your podcasts, and uh, they're engaging and very interesting. I always learn something. Uh, Water Authority, we have our own podcast. Oh, my God, <laughs> I forgot to say that. So I do, Thank want, to, you. I do want to promote it. It's called yes. What About Water. And I've listened to yours. I also enjoy it. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much. It's called What About Water. You can find it on um, on all podcast platforms and uh, YouTube and Spotify and uh, Apple Podcasts and all that. Uh, 
you know, I, I think we, we probably agree on this, but when we started our podcast about a year ago, uh, about a year and a half or so, we thought that, you know, this is something that um, is sort of uh, the, the next wave of, of contacting and communicating with, uh, with our, either our customers or our clients and uh, providing, you know, key worthwhile information to them. So it's been successful. And I asked, you know, folks to, to certainly give it a try and uh, let us know what you think. We also, you know, we're Facebook and Twitter, and people can certainly reach out to us if, um, if they have questions about their drinking water or they want an in-home consultation, you can call the Water Authority at 631-698-9800, and we'll, uh, we'll come out, and uh, we'll uh, do everything we can to resolve any, answer any questions or resolve any problems you might have. It's good to know. Good to know. And again, I apologize. I meant to, I meant to plug Jeff's podcast. You guys can listen to the Water Authority and Jeff again at What About Water on all the usual podcast uh, channels and apps, and just like the, the Environmental Echo here. But again, I want to thank Jeff for coming in and taking the time to speak with us and, and for, to give the, the listeners a little more insight into the Suffolk County Water Authority, its, its operations, and its, its uh, you know, vision for the future here of Long Island and, and how we handle water and get it to the, the residents. But again, I am Paul Boyce, the CEO and president of PW Grocer, uh, uh, and this is the Environmental Echo, the podcast. And so you guys, if you need to reach us again, it is www.pwgrocer.com. Dot com backslash podcast and I want to thank Jeff again as well as our, our listeners and subscribers today for joining us and I, I hope you guys found this as informative and enjoyable as I did thank you thank you Paul